from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Jessica Contrera, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 28th. Today, who's paying for Trump's defense lawyers? Maduro's hold on Venezuela and the branding genius of K-pop group BTS. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The chaplain will lead us in prayer. Trump's defense lawyers finished their opening arguments today in the Senate impeachment trial. Just to give you a very quick, brief overview of today, we do not intend to use much of that time today, Mr. Chief Justice. We intend to be, our goal is to be finished by dinner time and well before. We'll have three presentations. There wasn't much new information in what his lawyer said. In our presentation so far, you've now heard from legal scholars from a variety of schools of thought, from a variety of political backgrounds. But they do have a common theme with a dire warning. Danger, danger, danger to lower the bar of impeachment. The lawyers played clips of what Democrats said during the Clinton impeachment. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. Future presidents will face election, then litigation, then impeachment. The power of the president will diminish in the face of the Congress, a phenomenon much feared by the founding fathers. I expect history will show that we've lowered the bar on impeachment so much. We have broken the seal on this extreme penalty so cavalierly that it will be used as a routine tool to fight political battles. My fear is that when a Republican wins the White House, Democrats will demand payback. You were right. But I'm sorry to say you were also prophetic. Throughout the impeachment trial, we've been getting questions from listeners about how all of this works. And Beth Cagle had a really good one. My question is, how are we paying for the president's private lawyers? Is this been done before in the past? And why are we paying for his private lawyers? Shouldn't he be working with somebody within the government? We asked Anne Marimo, our legal affairs reporter, for the answer. For the impeachment specifically, the president has two sets of lawyers. He has his private attorneys who are being paid with private money, and then he has the White House counsel's office attorneys who are paid by taxpayers. Their salaries are government-funded salaries. So for the private set of lawyers, we determined by looking at campaign finance reports that the Republican National Committee is picking up the bill. In addition, we have the president defended in his official capacity by the White House counsel's office, and they each receive a taxpayer-paid salary of between $168,000 and $183,000. So that's a separate set of lawyers from the private attorneys who are working hand-in-hand together to defend the president. I want to give you a little bit of an overview of what we plan to do today in our presentation. You will hear from a number of lawyers. So how many lawyers are there total, and and who are they? Right. So Jay Sekulow is um, probably President Trump's longest-serving private attorney. It is our position as president's counsel that the president was at all time acting under his constitutional authority. 
He runs a nonprofit Christian legal organization in addition to having a private law firm. I expect you have heard American poet Carl Sandburg's summary of the trial lawyer's dilemma. Jane Raskin is a Florida-based attorney who I believe was recommended to President Trump by Jay Sekulow. In addition, we have... When the House managers gave you their presentation, when they submitted their brief, they repeatedly referenced Hunter Biden and Burisma. Pam Bondi, the former Florida attorney general, is part of the president's team. She's um, being paid for by the government, working with the White House. Distinguished members of the Senate. And then on the private team. I stand before you today as I stood in 1973 and 1974 for the protection of the constitutional and procedural rights of Richard Nixon. President Trump recruited Alan Dershowitz, the former Harvard Law professor who represented O.J. Simpson and also Jeffrey Epstein. And then we have, of course... During the Clinton impeachment trial 21 years ago in this chamber... Kenneth Starr, the former independent counsel from the last impeachment of Bill Clinton. And I think if there's one thing that people know about lawyers, it's that they cost a lot of money. So all of these lawyers, how much is this costing? That's right. We don't know yet for sure how much it will cost. But what we know from history is for Bill Clinton, for his impeachment trial and all of the investigations that had dogged he and Mrs. Clinton, those bills totaled over $10 million. And unlike President Trump, who is using Republican National Committee funds to pay for his lawyers, the Clintons set up a separate nonprofit legal defense fund that raised money independently to cover those legal fees. And again, it was millions of dollars. And Hillary Clinton famously said that they, the Clintons left the White House dead broke because of all those bills. So what has changed? Why is President Trump paying for his legal bills in a different way than the Clintons paid for theirs? One thing that's different is that President Trump is in the middle of running for re-election. You'll remember Bill Clinton, this was in 98 and 99, was in his second term already. So there's a lot of fundraising energy right now around President Trump, and the president and his supporters are even using impeachment as a way to raise money. Another thing that's changed is in 2014, there was a measure, a campaign finance measure in a bigger bill that passed Congress that actually lifted the limits on what national party committees could raise. So instead of just being able to raise $35,500 from individuals, donors to the national party committees, including the RNC and the DNC, could spread around a total of $319,500 between three different funds within the party committee. So for conventions, building renovations, and legal funds. And that matters here because now there's this whole new fund for legal fees, like the ones that are being paid for President Trump. So it's kind of the perfect storm, right, where the rules have changed so that they can get more money. And then because of this upcoming election, there's sort of a driver for people to donate more. So are they actually donating more? Is impeachment bringing more money into the RNC? According to the RNC, since Nancy Pelosi formally announced the start of impeachment in late September, they say they've attracted 600,000 new donors energized by the investigation defending the president from impeachment. And in fact, President Trump has sent email solicitations around impeachment. So if all this money is flowing into the RNC, and they are using it for these lawyers' expenses, but is it so much money that 
they're actually going to profit off of this situation? Are they actually going to come out on top and be able to use that money for other things? President Trump is already raising record amount of money from his supporters. And as we've seen, the RNC has been able to transfer money from some joint fundraising accounts to pay for these legal fees. Um, We'll find out more on Friday when the next reports come out. But it's certainly been a huge boon to their fundraising efforts. Anne Marimo covers legal affairs for The Post. On Wednesday, the trial will continue. Senators will finally get their chance to ask questions about the testimony so far. But they'll still have to stay silent. The questions will be written down and passed to Justice John Roberts to read. Venezuela is a country where two men claim to be president. And right now, who your president is depends on whose side you're on. Anthony Fiola is the South America bureau chief for The Post. So Nicolas Maduro is the man who controls the military. He's the man who sits in the presidential palace. He is the man who executes executive orders. He is the man who more or less controls the country. And meanwhile, his nemesis, Juan Guaido, who's the opposition leader, who also has a claim to the presidency as head of state, He is a man who is recognized by almost 60 countries around the globe, including the United States, as the true president of Venezuela. So let me ask the dumb question. Sure. How is it possible that one country can have two leaders who both think they're in charge? It's possible because you have a societal rupture in Venezuela. You have one side, that side that is led by Nicolas Maduro, the left, the people who still cling to the ideals of Hugo Chavez, who see him as their president. He was the anointed successor of Hugo Chavez, and he claimed to win elections in 2018. Now, the huge problem with that is what the opposition has said and what you know many countries around the world have said, including the United States, is that those elections were rigged. Anthony went to Venezuela and actually sat down with Nicolas Maduro. It was the first interview Maduro has given to a major U.S. media outlet in nearly a year. It took some weeks to arrange this meeting through people who know Maduro. Ultimately, I was able to get into the palace, and it was the first time I'd been there since I interviewed Hugo Chavez back in 2000. And it is, in some ways, very much what it was then. I mean, the palace is this beautiful neoclassical building with mosaic floors and its own chapel and et cetera. It feels very different, obviously, than what is outside the walls of that palace, which is a country that continues to suffer. And I ended up there in, uh, in the room with Maduro, and we talked for over an hour about a vast array of topics. So I meant to avisarme. me. It ranged from what he was willing to do in order to try to create some kind of a peace with the opposition, what he wasn't what he wasn't willing to do, which he discussed in quite some depth. 
But we also talked quite a bit about the April 30th attempt to overthrow his government that we all know now has failed. I mean, some people refer to that period as Venezuela's Bay of Pigs, an opportunity that was lost to change the government. He claimed to have been aware of the plot against him um, some 10 days before it was sprung and that he let it play out um, so he could try to sort out the extent of the tentacles of sedition against him. So if he's saying that this important moment in Venezuela's recent history isn't actually what the rest of us have been told that it was, what does that say about how he views the situation now? I think he he came across as as a man who felt confident. Yo estoy aquí porque nosotros somos de verdad. Tenemos una legitimidad histórica, una legitimidad he came across, uh, and, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell to the extent to which that's a facade, right? But he certainly came across or, or tried to portray himself as a confident man. He seemed to suggest that there had been various attempts to oust him, and he's still the one sitting in the presidential palace after all of that has been said and done. He has made a direct sort of appeal, I guess, to have to open uh, talks, direct talks with the United States and with Trump. He insists that that Trump has been poorly advised about how to handle Venezuela. But does that indicate that I think there's a, a lot of question right now about how should the U.S. get involved or not? Uh, and so does that indicate that he is open to U.S. involvement? I think it depends on what you mean by involvement. He did certainly suggest that there would be benefits in the offing if the Americans took a different approach, i.e. that there could be some kind of oil bonanza for American companies. In a relation of respect and dialogue, everything is ganar-ganar. Everything would be petroleras. A lot of those spoils are now going to the Russians. And I think what his argument was, was that, you know, in fact, if the Americans took a different approach, it could be lucrative for them, that it wouldn't be just political gain, but economic gain. That was certainly the message that I think he was trying to send. But the reason why that's complex is because, you know, it does feel as if, you know, the strategy on Venezuela has not been based, obviously, purely on economic decisions. Well, we have a policy on Venezuela that's a firm policy. Uh, Venezuela is really hurting, and we're trying to help people in a humanitarian way. Uh, Venezuela is in very sad shape. That shows you about socialism. I mean, that shows you what happens. It has been more focused on the fact that the Americans have talked about a country that is now what they call a dictatorship, right? And they insist that because of the kinds of things that the Maduro government has done, you know, Venezuelans have been forced to flee in the millions, that there are still people that are starving in the country. Um, You know, that has informed the American policy, I believe, more than, for instance, the economic incentives that Maduro has sort of bandied about as an option should the Americans change course. Because there are countries that are taking advantage of those. Certainly. I mean, the Russians, for sure. More than anyone, the Russians have moved in there and are making a mint, frankly, off of the Venezuelan oil industry. Now, you have to understand that Venezuela has the world's largest proven reserves of oil. 
Um, but, you know, because of corruption and mismanagement and various other unsundry reasons, their industry now is a fraction of what it was when Chavez took power in 2000, right? But even within that reduced production, there is the possibility to make money. Now, it's a it's a very complex relationship they have with the Russians. Part of what they've been doing has been using their oil to pay back loans to the Russians. But they've also been striking other deals that have been more financially lucrative for the Russians moving forward. It really, for them, their relationship with Moscow is about keeping their lights on. So if he is trying to keep the lights on, trying to, you know, hold on to the power that he has, what is the opposition doing right now? The current strategy, as you probably have seen in the news very recently, is that Juan Guaido has left Venezuela and defied a travel ban, right? First he went to Colombia, then he went to Europe. And the reason for that is because what the Europeans do is considered very key, right? The Americans have already taken a very aggressive stance against the Maduro government, right? There have been dozens of individual sanctions. There's an oil embargo. They've blocked the Venezuelans from the U.S. financial system. So they've taken really some of the toughest financial actions they've taken against any government. They've taken against Venezuela. The Europeans, on the other hand, have demurred from going too far. I mean, yes, they have imposed travel bans and some other restrictions on some Venezuelan officials, but for the most part, um, you know, it, it is said that a lot of members of Maduro's inner circle, for instance, their children go to school in Europe and some of them have properties in Europe. And it could really sting the government if the Europeans took a harder line. But they have so far not done that. And I think the reason why, you know, Guaido has focused partly on Europe on this trip is because they are very eager to see the Europeans step up and start doing more. Now, that won't be easy, partly because the European Union is a complicated beast and it's very difficult to get, you know, uh, two dozen countries and more than two dozen countries to sit down and agree on any one policy, right? You're more likely, I believe, to see some limited EU measures, but perhaps we could see some tougher individual bilateral steps taken from some of the, the larger nations in Europe, like Britain, like France. It sounds like when you went to meet Maduro, he was in this place where he's feeling pretty good. He feels confident and powerful. He's maintained his allies um, you know, the opposition is going to go try the next thing, but he seemed pretty confident that he was going to be in power for a while. You know, I, I do believe that that's what he was trying to portray, but we also need to clarify the fact that the situation has become more and more untenable by the month there, right? I mean, the Venezuelans are running out of reserves. They're running out of money. It's unclear how they're going to be able to sustain themselves a year from now. I think that, yes, I, I think that he was a leader who is trying to portray that sense of confidence. But I think behind that confidence, he's got some real serious issues that he's grappling with in order to maintain his grip on power there. That said, he and the people around him have been able to overcome everything that they've been thrown at so far. And I think that does breed a certain sense of confidence, knowing that you've overcome those things. But I also think that they realize that this is not going away anytime soon. Anthony Fiola is the South America bureau chief for The Post.
And now, one more thing. BTS, the most outrageous thing they have endorsed is fried chicken. When I spoke to the head of their U.S. fan group, the U.S. BTS Army, she broke her 10-year streak of vegetarianism to try it. And fans joke that if they had even talked about a laundry detergent, it would sell out the next day. Their newest sponsorships include Starbucks in Korea, as well as this global arts project that has artists from all over the world doing installations, including this hot air balloon that will sail from the UK to South Korea made from recycled bags. My name is Marianne Liu, and I'm operations editor for The Post, and I write about music and race. BTS stands for Beyond the Scene. They're a seven-member South Korean boy band, incorporating everything from hip-hop, electronica, pop, rock, rap, And they are the first as the Beatles to earn three number one albums on the Billboard 200 chart in less than a year. That was last year. They're also a branding machine, racking up a reported $4.65 billion last year. And this accounts for a sizable 0.3% of the country's GDP. They're different than the typical band because they don't, they go past, I guess, touring t-shirts. They're very smart about what they do. Things are limited edition or tour only. On top of that, it seems like they don't as much, you know, slap their name on things, but actually help create the product. So, for example, they've worked with Line Friends, which is a subsidiary of the popular messaging app, to actually draw the emojis, you know, that the products have. So they're really cute. Like, one is a heart. BTS has also worked with Hyundai, Mattel. They have their own Barbies. They have an Uno deck. They have... Puma outfits that, when I just checked yesterday, were sold out. When they worked with the Hyundai, this SUV, it was sold out for months. We present the all-new Hyundai Palisade. So while BTS did perform at the Grammys, they were shut out of the nominations. They were also included on the K-pop category for BMAs, but it was almost a separate but equal kind of deal where they're not recognized in the regular representation of pop music. They are a big deal. Their new album, which drops February 21st, is already selling more than 4 million pre-orders alone. And so I think it's important to pay attention to a boy band that might not look or sound the same than what the general mainstream music is used to that they are important, they are turning in a sizable 0.3% of South Korea's GDP. That's $4.65 billion. As BTS is on the rise, what could take them out of their prime is this mandatory military service all South Korean men have to go through by the time they're 28, and their members are ranging from 22 to 27. Other K-pop bands have gone through the same thing, and have gone on hiatus during this military service. But they didn't have the same branding or popularity. They weren't BTS. Marion Liu is an operations editor at The Post.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag PostReports. For more updates from the Senate impeachment trial, check out our impeachment podcast feed. It's updated daily with the latest stories from Post Reports and our other political podcasts. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'm Jessica Contrera. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 